Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors, Take a Walk and Make a Podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we are preaching. So what is astonishing you, friend? I am astonished by the state of Mississippi removing the Confederate battle flag um, off of the state flag. Well, full disclosure, I was born in Mississippi. I was born in Mound Bayou, Mississippi. Uh, Have lots of family there. Um, And so it's, uh, it's a state that... I know fairly well. I mean, I haven't lived there in a long time. I grew up just across the state line in Memphis, Tennessee, Um, but um, we travel to Mississippi often. Um, And the removal of that Confederate symbol, in my mind, I mean, it really just seemed um, like something that would never happen. I mean, there, I think there was a, a vote, uh, a, a vote a few years ago, and the people of the state voted not to remove it. And so this, this vote by the state legislature is just astonishing to me. And it's a reminder, once again, that symbols matter. I mean, this, this was added to the state flag, uh, what, 18 something? Uh, as a response to uh, newly freed slaves, as a response to um, uh, black equality, black advancement, it was it was uh, put up as a statement um, about the enduring influence and roots of white supremacy in Mississippi. I mean, it was meant to make a statement, and to have that come down matters tremendously. Uh, There are some symbols that don't matter. This matters. And listen, it was not out of the goodness of their hearts. Well, for the most part, I'm sure for some, for some, it was a very moral decision. But for a whole lot of folks, this was simply about economics. When the SEC said, we will not have any football championship games in the state of Mississippi unless you change this, right? Uh, The University of Mississippi, uh, Mississippi State, the leadership of those universities said, okay, we are on board with changing the flag. This this was um, in many ways response to economic pressure. And again, this matters for even when people are not morally enlightened, they can be moved to do the right thing. Well, and isn't it interesting that, I mean, the source of that economic pressure came from, I mean, I'm assuming a moral position of the SEC, right? Like it was this athletic body that said, we're not going to do this anymore if this is here. So I mean, it's interesting I mean, sitting here having conversation with two pastors, like it's interesting that the institution that had the moral authority and impetus 
to play hardball um, was not the church. <laughs> it was yes. this um, athletic association and that, but I mean, I, I think it's really what is, I mean, amazing about this moment was also that it, it just, I mean, because I'm not a geography buff. Um, so if you had asked me before this week, what was on the state of Mississippi, if, or if you had said to me, do you know the state of Mississippi still has a Confederate flag on its flag? I would have been like, shut up, you're lying. Like I, you know, you just, so, I mean, I think for most people outside of Mississippi, we wouldn't know it or even believe that it was true. And then for people living in Mississippi, like it's like being for black people living in Mississippi, it's like being perpetually gaslit, right? Just because the fact that that flag with that symbol on it exists, like the fact that it's real gives it a certain amount of legitimacy, right? Because mm-hmm. because like the, the psychological move is if this means what I think it means, what it does mean, it shouldn't be on the state flag, but it is. So, mm-hmm. you know, how do I, how do I live with that cognitive dissonance? And so, I mean, I think part of the gift of it being removed is that then we all have to say like, how in unholy hell was there a state flag that didn't remove a Confederate symbol until the year 2020? Like, how did we get to a point where we didn't have moral clarity on, on that? And of course, I mean, the answer is the same as the solution, right? I mean, it's economics, like it's all, which again, shout out to the work of Ibram Kendi and just saying like, you, you think like prejudice and hate is this like, like it's all about like culture or it's all about this intrinsic culture that goes along with white skin. And the reality is it was always about economic policies that needed to be rationalized. And so the policies came first, then the false doctrines came second at birth, the prejudice that made it just sort of like a, um, a cycle, like a, like a renewing cycle. But I mean, that's just, I mean, that's, I mean, yeah, like now that it's gone, we can go like, how in the world was it ever there? And I'll just say someday the police officers who murdered Breonna Taylor in her bed, in her room, I mean, they will be arrested and that will be a really good day in a, I mean, as good as anything can be with regard to that situation. But part of the reality, like the fact that they are still out there not being arrested gives like intrinsic, like gaslighting to like, if this were really as bad as it is, then how could they not be arrested? But they haven't been arrested. So that on some level sends the message that what happened was okay or wasn't unjust, wasn't a miscarriage, wasn't a miscarriage of justice because we have a justice system that says like, no, we, we have consequences for unjust actions. And yet if there's no consequence for that action, then I guess it wasn't unjust. If the Confederate flag can be on a state flag until 2020, then there's this very clear message from the symbol that that symbol is, and everything it stands for is legitimate. It's just, it's really, um, I mean, I think I was talking to a friend this week and we were just talking about like the two crises that we are navigating as a country, um, one being the pandemic and one being the crisis of white supremacy, which I mean, is not new, but is 
newly visible to some people, not because of morality, but because of economics, right? Because they don't like rioting in the streets. But we were, but I, we were saying like, the thing about the pandemic is like, it's a very hard, um, and also it's just so unclear. Like it's legitimately unclear what the right, what the right calls are in terms of like how to have human flourishing. Like, is it better to do a strict lockdown? Is it better to let some things up so that people can resume? I mean, like it, there's just, there's real uh, lack of clarity. It's a novel virus. People don't know how to treat it. People don't know what the risk is. There's un, it's hard and it's unclear, but when it comes to white supremacy, it's hard, but it's completely clear. And so then when there's still people acting as if there's ambiguity or you have these relics of practices or symbols that are left, it's just, it's a, it's a total mind. Um, it, it, it just, it messes with your mind because there's nothing, there's nothing morally ambiguous about white supremacy. There's nothing morally ambiguous about the systematic oppression of people of color. And yet here we are in the land of the free and the home of the brave still having a discussion. <laughs> yeah, I'm reminded of that place. I believe it's in the Gospel of John and Jesus um, heals a blind man and there's there's lots of controversy around it. Um, the, the Pharisees are, are uh, once again unhappy with Jesus and uh, there's this back and forth. And I remember uh, there's a place where the Pharisees asked Jesus, are we blind too? I mean, these yep. people who had the text memorized, right? Are we blind too? And so, yes, I, I'm not surprised by the blindness of many in our society. Um, I, I am encouraged by the removal of the Mississippi state flag because, for me, it is it is yet another reminder of the slow and steady march of justice, that justice will prevail. At times, it seems um, the opposite is true, but yeah. there is this slow march of justice. And I think, and, you know, that's, oh, go ahead. No, I was just gonna say, I think we, and I'm not an historian, but I think, I think we can compare the times in which we are living with this dual crisis of, of COVID-19 and uh, racism, police brutality, with, with the mid-late 60s, right? Because they were dealing with the, uh, the Vietnam War and the civil rights movement. And there was something about that, that, that dual crisis that made many in the nation feel like... Um, Things were falling apart. And yet in the midst of that, look at, look at what God did through that, that civil rights movement. And this week, I've actually become a bit more hopeful in, in, in these chaotic times. Like, oh, God, <laughs> you may be just shaking things up so that uh, you, you can you can get your work done. It, it is it is disorienting. It is painful for us, but um, I I think I think I see you. <laughs> I think, yeah, I mean, I, I think I, I see some stuff you're doing, Lord. And I do think it's helpful. 
like my friend, Pastor Barbara Smith always talks about like, you know, new birth is painful and it's mm-hmm. dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it just causes great agony and, and there's no, there's no birth without mm. pain and agony and, and suffering um, and danger. And so I think that's helpful because I, not to be Pollyanna-ish about it, um, but also just to go, well, what I don't want, what I don't want is a normal that continues to, you know, continues to normalize the Confederate battle flag that continues to normalize the destruction of black and brown bodies that continues to normalize um, the, what, what steals the souls and full humanity of white people. Like, I don't want to normalize that. And so I, I want something new and there's no way to get to something new without a birth, without a rebirth process. And that's just biblical. And I think you and I have both also seen it in our church transformation processes. Like you can't, you can't fundamentally change the culture and life of a settled community without without a crisis that's right and like a crisis so i mean i think that's one thing that people don't understand i mean legitimately don't understand and 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 it's privilege that allows you to not understand it right because you have no urgency about change because you don't need things to change in your flesh but i mean what people don't understand about like well why can't we just work for justice without you know without being angry in the streets and without breaking windows and without like why why do you have to make me feel so uncomfortable if i mean like i agree with your cause and like but people have been theoretically agreeing with the concept of justice mm. i mean since 1776 people have agreed with the concept of justice and freedom and liberty for all but not enough to actually live out those truths like to take the risk of saying well let's see can we all live here with equal justice under the law like we believed it but we haven't lived it and and for i mean if if normal hasn't made you work towards that in the past, why would anybody have an expectation that normal would make you work towards that mm. in the future? Which is not the same as me saying that I condone or justify violence. I'm just saying like what? crisis. New, I mean, that's what everybody says. All the leadership gurus, all the business people, like crisis is an opportunity for change. And with no crisis, people don't change. Yeah, and listen, we all know this on an individual level. Right. As, as, as Christians, as spiritual people, we know that we ought to pray. Like we all agree prayer yeah. is good. And yet many of our prayer lives, well, they're just anemic, but let a crisis come into our lives. And then we get a lot of energy to pray, right? It is that crisis that made us focus on prayer. It's the same thing on a national level. It's the crisis that makes us focus on the thing we say we agree upon. Right. Yeah. I, I, I do think not in any way to trivialize or normalize the pain of this moment or the generational suffering of people. But I mean, I think as people of faith, we have to be able to say like, okay, this is a crisis. And so what, like, how can we be a part of what God is doing to bring new birth and new abundant life out of this crisis? And that, um, yeah, so I, I am with you on that. So um, what's astonishing you? Well, we were talking about this just a little bit before, like what is astonishing me? And I don't think, 
hopefully I don't sound quite as pathetic as I <laughs> sounded and what? felt last Friday. But I mean, what's really honest, in all honesty, what is astonishing me is just how hard this moment is mm. for pastors, like putting aside to the side for one moment, the justice work, like just how hard this is to pastor in this moment, because like when you and I were 10 years ago in the um, um, church transformation pilot project, you're learning all of this stuff about leadership theory, which we never learned in seminary. And they were talking about like the kinds of challenges that leaders face and that leaders face two kinds of challenges, technical challenges and adaptive challenges. And, and like the name implies, they're both challenging, right? But like a technical challenge is, is essentially just like, you know what to do, but you can't figure out how to get it done, right? Like, so it's yes. not that there's any lack of clarity about what to do. You just don't have like the money, the knowledge, the technology, the whatever. There's a, just a physical barrier between you and what you know you need to do. And and technological challenges are are just, are difficult because you got to figure out how to get the thing or learn the thing that you need, right? So they're, it's not that they're easy. They're not easy. But then the other kind of challenge that leaders face are adaptive challenges, which is just like you are still in this leadership role leading the same institution, but the world around the institution has changed. And so you have to figure out a new way to do the thing that you exist to do, right? And so mm -hmm. that is a challenge because you actually maybe really don't know what to do. Like, like right now with the coronavirus, I would say, you know, lots of institutions, um, especially healthcare institutions, I mean, it's an adaptive challenge because it's brand new. So they might be experts in their field, but nobody is an expert with this particular virus. And so it's not just a matter of not being able to do what you need to do. It's also like a genuine question of not knowing what that is. And normally institutions face either technical challenges or adaptive challenges. And here in this moment as a pastor, we get both at the same time because we can't do anything that we normally did before. Like every single way that we used to do what we do is at least temporarily and temporary is looking like a long time mm. has to be reimagined. And then, you know, because worship has to continue to be virtually, which again, as we've said before, is something that we needed to do before, but there was no crisis. So there was no urgency. Mm -hmm. So we really weren't paying a lot of attention about how to do what we do and connect with people in the virtual realm. But now we have to do it because it's the only realm we have. And so just the technical challenges are just so vast. And we were talking beforehand. I mean, and like, I will freely admit that my, um, my hesitation and intimidation by the technical challenges of how to put worship all online skewed my judgment in terms of how long to continue to live stream worship in the way that we were live streaming it in the physical sanctuary, because that was a technical challenge I knew how to solve. Like I knew how to walk into the sanctuary, ask someone to set up a camera and like the camera on their phone and push the button on that says go live on Facebook, like technical challenge basically solved. And now that we can't do that because people were infected and because, I mean, like, I don't know how, even if a month from now we were to go back into the sanctuary, there, 
there's zero guarantee that the same thing wouldn't happen all over again. So we have to worship in this other way by doing it all recorded, pre-recorded and stitching it together and, and, and publishing it on a platform. And I'm so grateful that we can do that, but just the technical challenges surrounding figuring out how to do all of that are just so enormous. And it's so frustrating that you're still trying to figure out all of the adaptive stuff. You're still trying to do the work, which frankly was deeply satisfying, but never easy of figuring out like, how do you preach the word in a way that's authentic and real and, and also relevant to the moment. So like Mm. everything that you're preaching all the time needs to be, you know, just relevant and true and prophetic and edifying to help people respond to the moment that we're in, not just the pandemic moment, but the, awakening moment of um white you know confronting white supremacy and and also you just have to figure out how to get the file off your phone (laughs) into the cloud to the computer of the person who's putting it all together and i know how fortunate i am that i have a person who's putting it all together but like legitimately it just like it took all day and i'm not even (laughs) sure that it's done just to get this file uploaded. And like, I mean, like, wow, wow, poor me. But I mean, it's just so interesting how like, it just pushes me over the literal edge because I'm so frustrated that I can't figure out this technical challenge. And it takes all this time and emotional energy. And when you solve it, it's invisible, right? Like, Mm. I mean, the fact that people (laughs) will go online and the sermon will be there, like, I mean, not that you do it for cheese and cookies, but you get zero cheese and cookies just because the sermon's <laughs> actually there. And the actual thing that it is has to be good on top. I don't know. Like, I just, I'm just sort of sitting with the fact that like, this is very hard. And mm-hmm. then not to whine about that, but also not to pretend that it's not hard. And then to say like, okay, as a follower of Jesus Christ, like, how do we do hard things? Like just, how do we accept that I'm hello, Captain Obvious? Sometimes things are really hard and not, you know, there's not a 23 minute solution to the problem and it's not going to resolve itself very quickly. And this is just um, you know, where where we are for a time. And as also we were saying before that we started rolling, like there are just zero guarantees of how long this lasts and like how ultimately this affects the health and vitality of our institutions if we end up essentially being physically apart for I don't know another three months another six months another year Mm -hmm. like there's just no um I don't know it's just it is astonishing me that this is really hard, like really, really hard. Yeah. We're learning skills now that we're going to need for a long time. And um, this is the first time in ministry. Really? I can't think of another time, but yeah, I'm thinking about production value. (laughs) Ron's like, wait, what? I missed that class in seminary. So, you know, um, YouTube uses a certain algorithm. So, you know, when you do your searches, 
um, they'll suggest videos um, that follow along with the searches that you've done previously. If you look at my YouTube feed, they're just all how-to videos, right? Because I just need that in this season because I'm learning how to create these videos. And again, it's hard. It's at times it's frustrating, but it's, it's what we do to both feed the people of God and to advance the ministry. Well, and also, I mean, it's just such an interesting thing because it's a place where a playing field that, I mean, even within the PCUSA, uh, which is our denomination, I mean, the playing field has never been level. Everybody knows it's not level. Like, it's just, it never has been. I don't, I don't know that it necessarily is faithful that it should be, but I also think it's just interesting to point out, like, what does it mean that people who are wealthy in their churches have access to certain resources and opportunities that people who are not wealthy do not have. And what does it mean for a church that professes to follow the Lordship of, of Jesus that we're just so comfortable with those discrepancies. But I think like, like to now see that your ability to do something as fundamental and basic as gather for worship and preach the word is totally, I mean, it used to be that like, you know, we, once you're in the pulpit, essentially it's just about, you know, like what you've seen and how you've prayed and what you've studied. And, you know, it's just, it kind of becomes level ground. And all of a sudden it is not level ground anymore because Mm -hmm. if you don't have the, you know, if you can hire someone who has the expert to set up the lights or do the thing or send you the equipment or produce it in certain ways, um, people's ability to see and hear what you say and absorb it is just very different than even if you, I mean, whatever. And this is the the thing that we've known all the time, that like the, the loudest Christian voices in the world with the most scope are the people who are on Turner Broadcast Network because like, bam, they're just in everybody's living room and the production value is off the charts. And like- I think you mean Trinity Broadcasting Network. Oh, that's sure. Yes, that's mm-hmm. a different thing, right? <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I, I just think it's just really interesting to say, like, what does this mean now that our communities that are filled with, people who are poor are now so much less able to even gather for worship and, and hear a word from their pastor than our communities that are filled with people who have lots of resources. And I mean, whatever, that's all I have to say about that. Well, even though, you know, we don't have the resources, uh, the amount of resources as some other congregations, I'm grateful that if we have to go through this, that we're going through it um, in 2020, instead of, yeah. you know, 1980, when I, I don't know, I don't know how we would have done this um, in the 80s, no. I guess, you would have gotten out the old school camcorder, the VHS tapes, and made copies and sent or, or a cassette tape and sent a tape. No, people. I mean, we would have been writing letters, like legit, yeah. we would have had to write out our sermons and mail them every week. And yeah. I mean, actually, there's a biblical precedent for that. I mean, there's always a way. There's always a way. And I'm really grateful. I just, um, I mean, it's just really interesting just that it's very, it's very hard. And like, obviously like no one's nailing me to a cross and that's the context of hard, right? 
But um, but you're making an important point, at least I think, well, you're making several, but one that really hits home with me is that there's really hard work going on behind the scenes, really hard work that we must do to make some very simple things happen that people don't see. And right. it's, yeah. it's taken for granted, whether it's uh, an individual or a team of people, there's some hard work going on, faithful work going on in our congregations uh, to continue and to advance the ministry of, of, of God's people. Well, and the other thing that I should just say, and I guess maybe this is what what is really behind what I said before is, um, I have a friend named um, Laura Everett, and she is the um, leader of the Massachusetts Council of Churches in, you know, Massachusetts. And um, one thing that she has done through her organization that I just think has been really prophetic and powerful is she has sort of named that discrepancy um, specifically about the way that, um, I mean, it's the, it's the council of churches. So in theory, like any, any church of any, you know, any denominational flavor in the state of Massachusetts, this is this common, common ground that, that she holds, that she creates and, um, and just does it really in incredible ways. And, but what she said going into this pandemic is like, this is hurting some parts of our body, this Massachusetts church council body way more Mm -hmm. than other parts. Mm -hmm. And if we are the Massachusetts council of churches, then I want to call those parts of our body that are way, way better resourced to give them an opportunity to give to the saints in the parts of the body that are way less resourced. And, and we all know that has, you know, equal value in the body of Christ period. And we also know that the churches that are less resources that have less resources tend to be in the communities that have less resources, which means the church often takes on several roles beyond the spiritual role. Like it becomes the place that you're doing job training or emergency food or, you know, maybe you're, that's the only place you can get a COVID test or whatever. And so she's done this great call. Um, I think that they have raised over $50,000 and it might even be Mm. over a hundred thousand dollars just to say like specifically for um, churches that would go to um, like economically disadvantaged churches and um, specifically black churches to the extent they fit that category and Latinx churches, because these are the people that are harder hit. And I just feel like what I love about that is just taking seriously, like, well, if the gospel is normative for us, then how do we respond to this present crisis with the values of the gospel and not the values of the culture? Because the values Mm. of the culture is like, you know, I mean, it is what it is. Some places aren't going to make it. Well, and that's, it, it, it would be survival of the fittest, right? right? And they say like, that's how capitalism works, right? The weak <laughs> die so that the poor, that, that the stronger read more deserving flourish and take up those resources. And I mean, that is the capitalist value system. And I'm not even mad about that. It's an economic system, but it's not the value system of the gospel. And so I just really appreciate, you know, that not only just the money that, which I mean, we serve churches that we understand the value of just the money, but I mean, just the prophetic call of what that looks like and all the people, like it's gotten traction in the city of Boston and around the state. So all the non-Christians who are like, huh, well, I don't know much about Jesus, but that seems like kind of a Jesus-y thing to do, you know? Mm, so anyway, it's that's pretty, good. 
That's good. That's pretty great. Yeah. So let's call that what I'm thinking about this week. What are you thinking about? I okay. All right. I'm thinking about um, here's another symbolic gesture. Um, I'm thinking about the decision of the NFL. I knew it. 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 Sorry. Uh, okay. So, okay. So the NFL has decided that at the beginning of every game during the first week, and I think it's just during the first week, before the national anthem, there's going to be uh, played Lift Every Voice and Sing, which is, you know, as long as I've known this song, it's always been called the Black National Anthem. It was written by the African-American poet, James Weldon Johnson. It is a, and it is actually in our hymn book. It's a, it's a yeah. hymn and it's a beautiful hymn. Um, and so at the risk of sounding like I'm contradicting what I said in the beginning about, you know, powerful symbols, you know, I, I get this gesture, but I, I don't know if this really makes much of a difference. Um, I, I'm concerned that with this kind of gesture, it's very easy to lose sight of the prize of eliminating police brutality, of eliminating racial injustice. This is nice. But um, I think the impact of this is small. Well, I think it's interesting because my, just of the people I follow and particularly like the black activists I follow, um, I mean, it's been pretty quiet, but the people who have spoken have been split down the middle. Um, but like I, I follow Allie Henney and she is like appalled um, Allie Henney, whose blog is Armchair Theologian, and she's definitely worth a follow. Um, but, and, and I think, like, if, if I can summarize her argument, I think, um, I mean, first of all, she's saying, like, this anthem is sacred. It doesn't belong to the NFL. And so she just mm -hmm. is offended that it's being, like, to her, just taken and, and monetized. I was going to um, say co-opted. Right. And, and the other thing is that she says, which I think is really interesting. And I mean, obviously I, I think she knows of, of, of what she speaks. Um, it, it's sort of like, she's saying it's, it's a pearls before swine moment that like, she thinks this, this mm -hmm. song, which has been so sacred and powerful for so long, then they're going to put it in this context, which has already just been so polarized. And she says like her, prediction is that some white people are going to with great glee deliberately disrespect and dishonor this moment like do everything they can to degrade this moment and um and i i mean i i i can't say i can't say any part of me would be surprised that that would happen um so yeah, I mean, I and and the point I read a lot too, which is like, I mean, it's great that cities, including Charlotte, have painted Black Lives Matter down the middle of their streets, but 
if that makes people think like, okay, so we're good now, right? Like we sang the song before the NFL, you're allowed to kneel down. Now we painted Black Lives Matter on the road for a minute. It's not that those things are bad, but if that means then we stop having conversations about what it means to defund the police, then, then they actually have caused harm because they've made it look pretty, but the fundamental issue of, you know, stop shooting <laughs> unarmed black people is not, is not shifted because we all know, um, you know, not everyone, I mean, that's powerful, but it, but it's not, it's not the most urgent thing. Like I read a metaphor, they were saying like, if you took your car to the shop and you said like the engine, like there's trouble with the engine and then you came and picked it up and they were like, hey, we gave it a new paint job. We really like deep cleaned and detailed the interior yes. and the stereo. Yes. And like, great, what was wrong with the engine? And they were like, oh, well, we didn't have time to work on that. But like, look how great it looks. And you'd be mm -hmm. like, dude, I'm like, I'm not mad that you made my car look better, but like, it doesn't run. <laughs> like, that's I need good. to fix the engine. That's good. It's like, that's a really good metaphor for the discomfort with some of these symbolic gestures when, um, they seem to be a like a like a bait and switch for the actual rope like actually actually no one who killed Brianna Taylor has been charged with anything mm -hmm. so that remains technically not a crime wow so i mean it is a crime but not under our law codes mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right now so that's that's a heck of a thing. Yeah, um, it's going to be interesting to see how this goes. I, again, I was just like, mm, okay, NFL. Hmm, all right. I mean, I like, I can understand how a well-meaning person thought, boy, we really made the wrong call about kneeling before the anthem. Oh, absolutely. So right. Yes. But I mean, well, and I can see, I can see how this decision was made. I can see NFL leadership going to black players asking what can we do right and surely a number of those players grew up in church they know this song i mean i remember being like 19 or 20 and i was in a worship context and we were going to sing the song and we didn't have hymn books we didn't have a screen and i didn't know all of the words and I had an elder, not a elected church elder, but just an elder in the community give me a talk. And she's like, you, especially someone going into ministry, you need to know this song. You need to know this song. You need to know this song. That's how sacred it is. And, um, and so I can see the NFL asking players and someone suggesting, hey, we should sing this song. So I get that. I'm not mad at that. I just don't think it'll have the needed impact. Well, and the other thing that's just interesting for me is, I mean, in my opinion, it's a, it's a Christian hymn. Like it's a, I mean, it's a gospel. It is a, a song about God bringing a people out of hardship and trial and horror. Um, and it's a song about this same God who is with us in the present, opening up to us and um, 
an unimaginably good future. I mean, it, the, the song just runs the gamut of the, the past was horrible, but God kept us and the future is great. So let, let's, let's have hope okay. in the present. It is, it is a beautiful hymn. Well, let me ask you this question. Well, I was just going to say about the fact that it's being a hymn, like I'm just not wild about songs that we use to worship God ending up in secular mm, Good point, yeah. Period. Like I don't, I, I just, that makes me uncomfortable because. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, because at the same time, I don't like songs that we sing about the nation in worship. Ending up in worship, right, exactly. Yes. yes. So, but. But another question is, and I'm interested in what you think about that. Like, I, I love that song and I understand where it comes from. And I mean, I don't fully understand, but I try to appreciate just the um, sacred role and the gift it's been to the black American community, Christian community. Um, And, but we sing it. I mean, we don't sing any hymns super regularly, but we sing it two or three times a year at the Grove. Um, and and we are a multi-ethnic church and most Sundays about half and half. And um, and uh, just a couple of weeks ago, actually, a, a, a friend, a mom in our church had gotten a children's book based on that song. And she said like, hey, will you, will you read that for the children's sermon and actually ask Jessica, a member of our worship team, like, cause there's, there's a spoken part and then a sung part. She's like, I really want you to read it and, and Jessica to sing it. And so, I mean, we did like, it's a great song. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, and it's just ap- apropos to everything that we're talking about in terms of how do we respond as the body of Christ to this current moment. And so, but it's interesting reading Allie Henning this morning. One thing she said is if she said in her opinion, um, that she thinks that white people should not sing that song. Um, and I don't know if she was specifically saying like in the context of an NFL game, or in general, but I mean, she was very clearly sort of claiming and naming this was, you know, written by, you know, by a black American for the black community. And, and, and she was saying like, and I, and I get this too. Mm. I mean, not that she needs me to get it, but like, I'm tired of things being taken from the black community and just given to everyone and ripped away from their context and cultural appropriation. And she was saying like, if you are, if you are white, you should stand up, you know, but just, like stand there in sacredness. And also she was saying like, if you see someone being racist and awful, like stop it. But I think it's interesting because, and I don't know if she would say something different about it being in worship as opposed to at an NFL stadium. But I mean, we sing it at the Grove. And I think what I've specifically said is, hey, the song says lift every voice and sing, like lift Mm -hmm. every voice and sing. And so if the reality is we are our brother's keepers and we we want to work to free one another. And so to the extent that we, you know, are, are willing to, to lay our lives on the line and do the work to find freedom for our brothers and sisters, like it, it affirms that song to join your voice to it. But then I'm like, well, maybe I'm wrong and that's not loving. And I, I, you know, I want to sing it to, you know, to build up and to love my brothers and sisters, not to, So here's what comes to my mind. The Apostle Paul is very clear throughout his letters that those of us, anybody, who by faith is willing to identify with Christ, 
in some mysterious yet very real way also participates in the suffering of Christ. Mm-hmm. And I think there is a tradition, a very real tradition in the Black church that anyone who is willing to walk with us, to identify with our struggle, will in very real ways, also mysterious ways, will participate in our suffering. And in that sense, this song becomes their song, right? Out from the gloomy past till now at last we stand. See, now I tried to quote the song and I messed it up. And now someone's going to say, see, he still doesn't know the song. <laughs> the elder's going to you know, get it, I know. And, but we sing, we shall overcome. Not just Black folk. We, mm-hmm. all of us in this struggle together, we shall overcome. So well, I, I, I think she makes a good point. Yeah. But I would add, it's, it's as people identify with this freedom struggle then yes, this, this becomes their song. And you, you could sing it and totally not get it. Part of the genius, part of the absolute right. genius of, of traditional black spirituals is yeah. their double meaning, right? Absolutely. So I got shoes, you got shoes, all God's chillin' got shoes, right? Get um, and there's and when I get to heaven, gonna put on my shoes, gonna walk all over God's heaven. And then there's the line, heaven, heaven, everybody talking about heaven ain't going. And that yeah. was meant, you know, as a as a side eye to to folks calling themselves, you know, your masters, right? It's like, okay, right. they talking about heaven. Um, and so I think this hymn also lends itself to that kind of double meaning. Why well, I, I appreciate that. And I, I mean, I've just always thought like the first line of the song is a command. Like, yeah. it's going to be like, yeah, like I, I'm falling in line. Um, anyway, well, what are you preaching about this week? I am preaching. Um, <laughs> I think I'm preaching to myself. Um, hopefully the congregation <laughs> can get on board with what I need to hear. Uh, no, uh, I, I am. I am. uh preaching to myself as, as the saying goes, um, I'm looking at Ephesians five, uh, oh. verse 16, where Paul says, make the most of every opportunity. Uh, the King James says, redeem the time. And, uh, so I'm looking at this pandemic, this, uh, COVID-19 as a divine pause and, uh, a reminder to be intentional about making the most of it. Uh, one of the illustrations I'm using is that, you know, when my car needs to be repaired, I have to park it first before I repair it. And that this, uh, but it's not just in the parking, it is what I do while it's parked. Yeah. And yeah. so while we're all in this divine time out, let's not waste this season. Let's, let's be about some uh, work that uh, will benefit uh, both our own lives and the world in, in this season. Um, I'm actually quoting, <laughs> um, the, I just think the Lord has a sense of humor. As I was studying the text, one of the things that came to my mind was uh, the movie from 1986, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And <laughs> right, so he fakes being sick in order to have a day off, but he doesn't stay at home. 
He gets a couple of his friends and they do the most in Chicago. I mean, they go to the Sears Tower, they hit a museum, they go to Wrigley Field, catch a baseball game, they sneak into this exclusive restaurant. I mean, they do the most. And then at some point in the movie, uh, Ferris says, uh, what's the quote? He says, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop every once in a while and take a look around, you might miss it. And I just want to be intentional about not missing what God wants, both for me and for the church in this season. There is work to be done. And the great thing about the text, Ephesians, Paul is also in a divine timeout. He is sitting in a Roman prison. And he's not feeling sorry for himself. He's not complaining. What is he doing? He's writing letters that become part of the New Testament. He is preaching the gospel to the Roman guard. And so we've just got to seize this moment to do God's work. Um, and so that's that's what I'm preaching this week. I think that's an amazing word. And I'm excited to hear it. And I want to point out the irony of you using one of the whitest movies in the world as a sermon oh, illustration. I just want to appreciate you as a black man telling me, as a white woman who came of age in the 80s, the plot of Ferris Bueller's Day Off as if I didn't know it. I know, I know. And and I, I really love that movie. It's I I just there there are lots of things I love about that movie. And as a child of the 80s, I and, and, <laughs> and I'm th- as I was thinking about the movie, I said to myself, you know what, I'm going to have to explain the plot because there are not a oh lot God. of Gen Xers in the congregation. And so I'm just going to have to. But here's I- the thing, friend, like to the extent that there is <laughs> such a thing as white culture, I promise you Ferris Bueller's Day Off is it. Well. <laughs> I just was like smiling the whole time. Like, oh, he's going to tell me the plot of Ferris Bueller. Like, oh, what does the line go? I know. Life moves pretty fast. But I mean, oh my gosh, whatever. I'm not going to like um, expound on Ferris Bueller's Day Off. But yeah, I'm familiar. Yes. <laughs> it's great. It's okay. Great. That's it's so fun. fun. I'm going to be laughing about that for the rest of the evening, I think. <laughs> I, I wish I knew Paul's letter to the Ephesians as viscerally as I know <laughs> Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Oh, wow. That's good. <laughs> anyway, good, good stuff. And you, what are you preaching? Well, well you've I already have, recorded. Yeah. If, I mean, I don't know that it may or may not. We might have to, I don't know what we might do. Um, it's still out there somewhere, maybe. Uh, but no, I, um, we are starting a new worship series called The Bible Doesn't Say That. And mm. looking at some of the just kind of core things that we say or really believe Um some of which we we really think is in the Bible somewhere. And some of the things, we just allow them to shape our worldview, even though they're really counter to the gospel view. So looking at some of those, and um, honestly, I was going to preach one sermon, and then we're having a guest preacher come in next week, and he's essentially preaching that sermon. So I <laughs> had to pivot and do something else. Um, but I um, was looking at some old notes I had taken on um, a sermon I preached on Zacchaeus, and really um, just in this moment when we're looking um, at systems of like systems and the way they affect people in our country. And I I sort of feel like a lot of Christians look at it and sort of say like, well, I mean, this is all really bad, but like, what am I supposed to do about it? Right? Like Mm -hmm. I 
have been taught that following Jesus means that I should be good, like me individually. So I should be faithful to my spouse and good to my kids and work hard and don't lie and don't cheat. And like, like, I know I'm supposed to be good, but like the fact that a system is bad, like that's just above my pay grade. Even if I agree, it's true. Like, what does that have to do with me and my salvation? And I think, you know, the Zacchaeus text is really helpful. And I really do think that Zacchaeus um, could be a stand-in for many people who are racially privileged in our country. Well, really every person who's racially privileged in our country, which is another way of saying white, that, you know, he he um, has this encounter with Christ and he has that like born again moment where he gets a new heart. Um and then, and then he jumps down to the tree and says, I'm not going to participate in this system anymore in a way, in the way that it was rigged to personally advantage me and mine. So he jumps out of this tree and he says, I'm going to give back half of what, I'm going to give half of what I have to the poor. And um, if I have taken anything that I wasn't entitled to, i.e. like all the places where I took more than collected more taxes from people than they owed, which was his right to do. Like it was legal for him to do that. But any place I did that, I'm going to give it back fourfold. And he actually says, um, he, he, um, it's not the word, it's, um, it's not redeem um, or restore. I'm going to restore mm. it for, for fourfold, which I mean, not to be cute, but like that's reparations. And so, yeah. I think that it's just really important to look at that story and go for Zacchaeus, what he didn't get was a new heart in Jesus. And then he returned to work on Monday, just like a kinder, nicer tax collector, or even a more reasonable (laughs) tax collector. Like he, he might've still collected taxes and that is fine. There's nothing immoral about collecting taxes, just like there's nothing immoral about being a police officer, but it's wrong to take what belongs to other people to the extent that they begin to die. And, and so, I mean, it's not that, you know, the actions themselves are inherently immoral or we need to have just free, all, free for all and the purge and moral chaos, but like to the extent that the systems are corrupt, the people who are benefiting after that corruption, they're the ones who have to say like, no more, like we have power in the system and no more. And that's, that's what Zacchaeus does. And so who knows how long he lasted as a tax collector after that moment, but what Jesus said is today salvation has come to his house. And so I just think this idea that we think that like life with Christ is all about our personal morality. And that story suggests that like, yes, and you can't be personally a moral person and profit off of a corrupt system. And that's just like another instance of hashtag, I didn't write the Bible. So like, so all of these people, like white sincerely asking, like, if this is my responsibility, like, why have I never heard about it anymore? I want to say like, mea culpa, like we didn't preach the gospel to you very well then because it's right here. Like this is the last dude that Jesus saves like before he climbs up on the cross and saves everybody. So anyway, that is what I'm preaching about. Maybe we'll see (laughs) it's out there somewhere. Or I might've just preached it to an audience of myself on my phone this morning. (laughs) So we'll see. Tune in at 10. Um, well, that's it. We will stop talking at you. Um, we're really glad that you listened. And I really recommend that you 
find Yolando's message, you can go to YouTube and search for the Derrida Church channel, Derrida Church Charlotte, North Carolina, or you can find him on the Podbean website. You can search for the Derrida Church podcast, or you can find Derrida Church by talking to Dr. Google and putting in Derrida Presbyterian Church, Charlotte, North Carolina, and it will pop you over to their website. And if you want to find out more about The Grove, the church where I serve, you can go to thegrovecharlotte.org or you can look for um, our messages, which are, we have an iTunes podcast called The Grove Church Podcast. And our service will premiere at 10 a.m. on Facebook. And I got to figure out how to put it on YouTube too, since it's now all pre-recorded, but um, that is a technical challenge for another day. Another anyway, technical challenge. <laughs> thank you for listening and we'll talk to you next week.